Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole, or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. That's C-O-N-C-E-R-N-I-N-G-H-I-M.com. We've been going through Paul's great sermon to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17. And to begin, I'll just reread these verses uh, beginning in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead." Now, we've seen already in our study how Paul uses the idea of an unknown God as inroads to this audience. And we've sort of been taking Acts 17 and Paul's message to the Athenians as a template of how we can share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those who do not have any uh, similar worldview as the worldview that the Bible teaches. And so how do we reach a generation that starts out at a place that's so different from the perspective that we have through the Word of God? Well, Paul has done several things so far that we've seen. He's used this uh, unknown God altar as a way to say, uh, this thing that you're worshiping in ignorance, actually, I will tell you about the God that you do not know. And he's been here all along. He's actually the creator God. And so Paul will use now uh, other ways that we'll see today to be able to find common ground with his audience. So we are down now in verse 28, which says, For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Now, in verse 28, Paul is likely quoting uh, directly from Epimenides, the 6th century B.C. Cretan Cretan poet, who perhaps wrote, uh, in you we live and move and have our being. Now, if that is the case, Epimenides was likely addressing Zeus in those words, the Greek uh, deity. Uh, 
And yet Paul ascribes this phrase to the unknown God that the Athenians are worshiping in ignorance. So he's subverting what is uh, being used by another Greek poet of something entirely different and taking it to say, well, this is actually true, but not of Zeus, but really of the God of the Hebrew scriptures. Now, whereas the former part of verse 28 is somewhat disputed as to its source, it's not exactly clear if it's uh, directly from Epimenides, but likely, the second part of this verse is firmly attested. For we also are his children is a direct quotation from Aratus of Cilicia, the third century BC uh, poet who made this statement about Zeus. So what we find is that in these verses, 26, 27, and 28, Paul is using other Greek sources, other Greek texts, to highlight the biblical truth that God does not need us. He is transcendent above his creation. There is nothing that we provide for him or any meet, uh, need that he has that we meet for him. But secondly, that God loves us and is near to us and uh, desires to be close to us. This makes us think of Psalm chapter 8, uh, verses 3 through 6, when I consider the heavens, the moon and the stars, uh, the sun and the moon which you have created. What is man that you are mindful of him? Uh, the son of man that you should uh, look on him or care for him. And so, uh, Paul is using these Greek philosophers as an inroads to sharing biblical truth with the uh, Athenian council at the Areopagus. On verse 29, we read that uh, Paul is counteracting the idea that God is like an image made by human hands. He says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. If human beings are God's children, Paul reasons, created in his divine image, then attributing worship to uh, created objects or idols does not follow. God has already given us a perfect representation of himself in the creation of humanity, so we ought not to attempt to create another image of God. Since God brought human beings into existence and sustains them, it follows that human beings are therefore incapable of creating anything divine. Something made by human hands is lifeless and not God. So human beings cannot create any sort of images that possess uh, any elements of deity. Even though now the, the Epicurean and Stoics would have, in theory, agreed with what Paul was saying here, in practice, they would most likely have conformed to the social norms of their day in temple and idol worship. So perhaps Paul was actually pressing on their hypocrisy a little bit here, making them squirm a little in their seats because they, while they really knew this to be true, 
uh, intellectually, they didn't practice it because of the social pressures of their day. Now, the apostle used arguments, once again, that he knew would find points of similarity with his listeners to prod their thinking toward the biblical truth that there is only one true God. So he subverted their own beliefs to point toward ultimate truth. He's not shy here, then, to make them somewhat uncomfortable. In other words, not everything that he's saying is something that he knows they will agree with. He is confronting the falsehoods that they have accepted as true uh, in practice. Now, the gospel doesn't change in verses 30 through 31, but our presentation of it might change in order to uh, reach individuals more clearly. Look at verses 30 and 31. The times of ignorance, Paul says, God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul now becomes confrontational in his presentation. It's time for his hearers to make a choice for themselves. His argument proceeds in this way. In the past, God overlooked the times of ignorance. Paul's reference to times of ignorance reminds the audience of the fact that there is an altar in the city where people worship in ignorance an unknown God, says Eckhard Schnabel, a commentator on the book of Acts. God's overlooking of this ignorance meant that he had not judged pagan peoples on an absolute scale. Now, it does not mean that he had not judged individuals personally or on a personal basis. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So what changed in the plan of God? Well, the coming of Christ has made salvation accessible to all people everywhere. And no one is without excuse. The gospel of Jesus was now going forth into all the world. The Athenian unknown God has now revealed himself through the person of Jesus Christ. And because there is a coming day when this God will judge the world in righteousness through a man he has appointed, this is the gospel message to Athens. Judgment for sin is coming, and agnosticism, or not being aware of, claiming ignorance about God, doesn't let you off the hook, because God has revealed himself to all through the person of Christ. God has provided irrefutable evidence to all, Paul says, by raising this man from the dead. And so he is proclaiming Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Now, the results of Paul's address are given in verses 32 through 34. And we read, When they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So most Greeks did not uh, believe in an afterlife for the body. Upon hearing the resurrection, they would have thought that this was ridiculous. 
The material or physical was insignificant in their mind. It was the immaterial or the soul that was important. And so some of them would have outright rejected Paul's words, but others were processing and contemplating the information. They wanted to hear more from Paul. They needed time to think. And so Paul leaves the presence of the council for some time. Still others believe in the message of the gospel, including some prominent individuals like Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus Council, and a prominent woman named Damaris, who may have had an important social position or some place of importance in the uh, Athenian church. So this passage shows Paul sharing the gospel without ever using the words Jesus, Scripture, Christ, cross, or sacrifice. Isn't that incredible to consider? He is not immediately offensive or abrasive to his audience, though by the end he is bold and courageous to present biblical truth. He looked for areas of common agreement with his audience and then sought to weave those together to form a coherent series of truth propositions. Paul was able to give the truth of Scripture to the Athenians without directly quoting Scripture. So what can we learn from Paul's presentation about how to address our post-Christian society? Four things that we can learn here as we conclude our message. First of all, we must be ready to respond to questions with biblical truth packaged in culturally relevant ways. We should be looking for neo-agoras or the marketplaces today where we can too, uh, like Paul, witness to Jesus and the resurrection. Secondly, scripture remains our foundation for truth. But we should also understand that it is largely viewed as irrelevant in our contemporary context. So we must give our culture, the Bible, in a way that is more uh, elusive than the straightforward, the Bible says, pattern. Third, we can subvert the claims of secular society and use them for God's glory where there are points of interaction with biblical truth. Augustine spoke of this as uh, plundering the Egyptians and taking their silver, gold, and clothing. There are elements of truth in society that we know point to the truth found in God's word. And finally, we can look for creative ways to share the gospel that do not compromise the truth of what God has done in Christ, while at the same time providing opportunities for larger groups of people to hear the gospel. All of these things show us the way that Paul was able to share the gospel with others of a completely different worldview. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit Emmaus.org.